My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Tigria Gardenia. She works as a nature-inspired mentor, a leadership coach, and studies plant intelligence and the effects of plant music on human health. She also has the honor of being a citizen of Damanhur. Did I say that right? Damanhur? Damanhur. Damanhur, mm-hmm. um, which is in Italy. It's the largest spiritual eco, eco- community in the world. Um, And we're going to get into, well, first, before we go any deep, where is Damanhur in Italy? We're we're in Northern Italy. So we're about 40 minutes outside of Turin and about an hour and a half from Milan. So what's called the Piemonte region. Sounds beautiful. (laughs) It is, (laughs) it is. Now, um, Tigria was born and raised in Miami. She is a graduate of University of Miami, go Canes. And uh, you then migrated to Seattle. Uh, You had a production company and then you transitioned into the circus and uh, you were a co-owner of a circus that led you into traveling to Europe with Cirque du Soleil, which I, I want to hear that story. Um, but <laughs> but let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your, your background, your influences, um, your uh, Cuban American, are you, um, your parents, yeah. were they born in Miami? No, they were born in Cuba. Both they were born in Cuba. Okay. So you're a first generation. I am. Awesome. So Miami, it's kind of like the, the Southern Manhattan, I guess (laughs) it's pretty good melting pot there. So just growing up there, you're exposed to so many different cultures, but um, I'll let you take it away. Tell me a little bit about your, uh, your life growing up. Yeah, it's, um, it's really funny because moving away, so I left Miami in my uh, early 20s, basically right after college, I got a, a job offer from a company back then called Progressive Networks. Today, most people know it as Real Networks, if they do know it, and then eventually went off, and I'll get to that point in a minute. But it's really been interesting to the, the giant appreciation I have of the culture that I was, priv- I feel really privileged to have grown up in. You know, Cuban Americans had kind of the best of both worlds growing up in Miami because we were never denied on the uh, our our Cubanness like our our roots while at the same time fully embracing American culture. I mean, our parents, 
most of them were first for, for those of us that are kind of the first generation. And in those early days, when a lot of the Cubans came over to the United States and settled into Miami, they were, you know, middle-class, they had educations and all these aspects, and they were able to kind of encourage us all to speak multiple languages, to, to live both in the cultures. So we were celebrating the day of Jose Marti at the same time as the 4th of July. Like we didn't feel this need to, to isolate ourselves or to switch or to hide anything. Um, and so that really informed my life. I and mean, without any kind of doubt, that was one of the biggest pieces of what formed um, an openness to cultures and an understanding of languages and a desire to sort of explore different pieces. So when I went off to Seattle with this, um, which was kind of like the farthest point in the, in the continental United States that I could go, as my mother likes to remind me, um, you know, it was this this interesting aspect of being amongst all Americans, like all the time, it's like, wait, what, what just happened here? It's so completely different. But, um, but it was fun because I actually studied music engineering and electrical engineering. So I had kind of this already right brain, left brain sort of aspect where, you know, I had the music side as well as I had the, the kind of technical side and I go and I go to work on the companies that were at the time really cutting edge, bringing audio and video into the internet. So what people today see as YouTube, we were kind of the predecessor of that. I remember when we launched Real Video, it was like, oh my God, streaming video online, never seen that before. So it was really exciting aspects and um, very influenced by, for me at least, that the 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 cultural points of always feeling really tied to Miami. And, and I've always gone back on a regular basis. I still go back twice a year to, to kind of give you an idea. And then uh, after working in high tech for about 10 years between Real Networks and Microsoft, there came a time where it was like, I was really missing those musical roots. I mean, I had come from the music world. I had spent so much time in the artistic realm. So I have a very artistic mind, but with an engineering focus. And, um, and that's when I left to start my production company and I produced large scale dance parties. Um, and the whole concept of the dance party was transformation. I've always been somebody who seeks to give space to transformations and evolutions. And I feel like it's really important to nourish people to have that kind of space. And it's one of what I call my deep patterns. Um, in the natural world, we see kind of different aspects of what looks very, very different. So you might see an ecosystem and you see all these different plants and animals and functions that they have, but there's usually some deep patterns that always follow things through. And one of my deep patterns is that nurturing transformation, that creating of safe space and the organizing everything around it so that what's happening inside of it can be given the room necessary to really expand. So I feel like if I take care of the details on the outside, then when you step in, you can let go and really um, let that true part of you come out, which oftentimes we don't give ourselves permission to do. So producing events was kind of the first place where I was able to consciously do that. And, um, and it had come from the fact that I felt like Again, I grew up in a place where we had a safe space to be whatever culture we needed to be. I felt like, you know, and it was 
it was the times in the in Miami where everything was allowed. I mean, it didn't matter if you were gay, it didn't matter if you were this, if it didn't matter if you were what color you were. I mean, it was just very open from that perspective. And then in Seattle, from a technological perspective, that was encouraged. Let's be as you know, wild and crazy and give ourselves permission to create whatever it is, because it was those early days of the internet and you could be the pioneer. And this is, I think, another reason why I'm very much in love with what we call pioneer species in the plant world, which is all those species that step into uh, a void or a disturbance and like fix it up and help kind of transform the landscape. And so my production company was really about that, was how do we create events that seem kind of far-fetched and at the same time, create that safe space. So like, for example, one of my biggest parties was at the Science Museum, going all night, creating that space where you could sort of just be a kid again with the music and, and all of the artistry and all of the arts, which I really enjoyed and performances. And as you said, I had uh, kind of had the opportunity, I fell into a, a circus culture, ended up um, working with some artists who asked me to come on board and help, you know, run this circus company. And from there, it sort of just snowballed. I had like all this artistic side, all these, you know, music and arts and performance side mixed in with my technology and obviously when you own a production company you have to learn all the marketing and the communications and and I loved all of learning all those pieces so I had all these elements around me and when my at the time partner said hey I really want to work for Cirque du Soleil I'm like let's make it happen like then that's where the magic stepped in because by that point I was already um, studying magic again and it had been a long time since I had kind of stayed away from the esoteric arts that I sort of grew up with because when you grow up in Miami, you don't even realize that you're immersed in a culture that's super magical and esoteric because I don't know, Santeria just seems normal. <laughs> and so, but coming off to Seattle, I was, I was really missing those connections to things that were sort of unexplainable. And so I ended up again, falling in lap, like synchronicity, you just sort of attract what you really need. Met a group of people through the performances that I was doing and the different production companies who were really into the esoteric arts. And so I just dove back in there. And that was the other kind of missing piece that gave me a completeness. I had the creative side with all of the, what I was doing. I had the more like STEM, mathematics, science, uh, technological side. And then I had this esoteric side which really helped me bring these three pieces together. And the last component that came in in the future, which I'll get to in a second, was kind of that, that natural component, that earth grounding component. And now I had them all. So the esoteric arts was kind of helped me really see. So I, I started to study Kabbalah. I eventually became a teacher of Kabbalah and some other and sacred geometry and some other pieces. And it was there that I was like, all right, let's apply this. Let's get this job with Cirque du Soleil. And that's really what we did. We, we, I did a whole series of different things in order to make this happen. And off I went to Europe. So I've been in Europe now for about 15 years. I spent the first year on tour with Cirque du Soleil, came off tour and um, settled in a few different, like traveled around a little bit, eventually settled in Barcelona, spent three years in Barcelona. And I've been in Domenher for 11 years now. I came here with the idea that I would um, I came here just to visit and then they asked me to come back, which is very rare, but Domenher, I'm one of the few people that Domenher has kind of asked to come and live here at least temporarily. So I thought I was going to be here six months and yeah, that's been 11 years. Yeah. 11, 11, 11 years. And it's, uh, it's been a, a really interesting journey. Cause again, it's, it's that it's been the place that has allowed me 
since we call it kind of Hogwarts for kids, because it's, I mean, for adults, excuse me, because it's like a magical community. I mean, we're all about how do you bring the esoteric spiritual side that we study and research into daily life by living together in the mirrors that we create. And while I was here, I really, um, I started to learn and, and step into a communication with the plant world. And that kind of gave me that grounded last side. So I have my super tech part, my, my um, more creative side. I have this whole sort of part relating to uh, spirituality. And then I have this grounding connection with the plant world that's really rooted in science for me. It's like rooted in science that gives me permission to uh, express the spirituality. So I've been here for the last, like I said, 11 years and um, just exploring and enjoying life and, and growing on a constant basis. You know, as you're talking, I'm just imagining what it must be like there uh, in Damanhur. Um, I, I want to rewind a little bit and maybe get uh, a sense of the, the family that you were born into, your, your mother and father, and do you have any siblings? Mm -hmm. I do. I have two older brothers. So you're the, the baby sister? I am. I am, although it's really weird because my brothers, there is an age gap, like they're eight and 10 years older than I am. And the way that we were raised, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm the younger sister, but more I'm kind of like the only child. There's like these different weird aspects to it. <laughs> what line of work were your parents in when you were growing up? My, um, my father is a jeweler. He's been a jeweler since he was 11. And um, so he owned a jewelry store pretty much all of my life. And my mother um, at first was with him working. And then um, when they divorced, my mother became a real estate agent. So she was pretty much a real estate agent for the majority of my life. You touched on Santeria. Um, for those that aren't familiar with it. It's kind of like a, a mix of Catholicism and um, would it be voodoo? Yeah, it is. And it's my, my family wasn't necessarily a practitioner in that aspect. That's why I said that the thing about interesting about Miami is that it's everywhere. My mom actually talking about form, how, how you're educated and sort of um, your formation growing up. My mom studied just about everything when I was younger. And um, I mean, she worked in a Jewish school for a while. I was technically uh, born Catholic, technically. Um, and I went to a Catholic school when I was in elementary. My brothers, on the other hand, were Baptist. Um, my mom kind of studied uh, different sort of spiritual studies and metaphysics and stuff like that. I remember her going to meetings. So she had this really wide range of interest. And um, because she had this wide circle of friends, she would go to lots of different types of events. And my mother was somebody who was kind of a natural medium. She, she had this connection that she never really expanded on and to the point where at some point in her life, she made a very conscious choice. And I think this is where I started to see the difference between religions or uh, spiritualities that are sort of put on you versus making an informed and a, what I call a conscious choice, which I think really informed the way I look at my own leadership style and the way I work um, with my clients, which is my mom at some point said to herself, 
I don't like uncertainty. My mother's never really liked uncertainty. And so I do not like any of these sort of philosophical or more spiritual um, traditions that give a lot of space for leeway. She, if I look at it from a Kabbalistic perspective, we have the pillar of religion and the pillar of philosophy. They're the two outermost pillars of, of the tree of life. And the pillar of philosophy says, you know, I, I get the understanding of what's the quote unquote right thing to do. And then I find my way to do that right thing where the pillar of religion says more, um, I'm given how to do the right thing. So I'm told what the right thing to do is and, I, and I'm given the set of rules in order for me to follow it. They're both totally can be beautiful and positive when they're used from that spirit of, of pureness. It's just that most of them get distorted either which way. But anyway, she made a choice. She said to herself, I don't like this whole, I'm not exactly sure what steps I need to take in order to get to a, a good and, and a good life, let's say it in that, in that term. So she chose religion. I mean, she went through everything that she had gone through and she went through all like Christianity and like I said, Judaism and Catholicism and baptism and blah, 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 and all these different and all the spiritual traditions and then ended up choosing to become a Baptist. Like it was really a very, very conscious choice and it's a very personal choice. So she and I can have wonderful conversations because my Kabbalah gives me an opportunity to kind of create a dictionary that allows me of a, a thesaurus, you might say, where she might say Jesus and I might say Tiferet or beauty or the heart consciousness or whatever. And she might use, you know, a metaphor or a story from the Bible and I might then apply it to an archetype or a type of um, understanding or wisdom that comes from a different tradition. And I'm able to use a language that she understands and map that out. And we're able to then have a beautiful conversation because the core essence of it all is the same. It's just that she likes being given rules and I don't. <laughs> so we just have two different ways of applying it. Can you tell me a little bit about your time um, with Cirque du Soleil? So I'm very curious about what, what that life is like. Yeah, imagine a city of 200 people traveling around together. That's, that's what it's like. It's really bizarre in that aspect. So the way that um, traveling tours and Cirque work is that you have, of course, all the artists and all the tech people. And then there's a core staff of administration and ticketing and um, lots of other administration that's really important. Things like the people who get you your visas and stuff like that. There's even cooks because you have a kitchen and there's like certain technical staff that is really, really important and core. And, and that's, then there's all the family members that travel. So artists are allowed to have their full, at the time that I was on tour, artists are allowed to have their full families on board. So, um, you know, husbands, wives, lovers, whatever, and their children. And then they have a school that the children can go to. And then the techs are allowed to bring their significant others on board and maybe their family, but there's a slightly different way that it works. So I was um, with one of the techs at first, I was just traveling as a family member. So I got to experience that. And then later on, I did work with them for a while. So I got to experience what it was like to be a full employee. And it is really interesting because there's a kind of set schedule and the way that those tours work, the tour that I was on was one of the tours where you had the tents. So there's a period where the, the tour arrives in a new city, you set the tent up, there's some time in between where some of us are off and some of us are working depending on what roles you have because of the creation of the whole sort of um, site. 
and then everybody comes in and you have your uh, prep time and the time that you sort of get used to the new space. And then you have your performance time and performances can be anywhere from depending on what the city is and what the kind of like crowd is in the city can be anywhere from nine to 14 performances in a week. So you really only have one dark day, one day when you're off and every other day that you're working. And it's really interesting because those tours can be anywhere from four to four weeks to three months where you can be in one site. Like we were in Amsterdam for three months, for example, in other sites, we were maybe only there for five weeks. And you get to experience what it's like to sort of be more than a tourist because you live there, but not quite a local. And you have a choice to make, which is how much do you stay insulated within the Cirque family? So you just hang out with Cirque people, you do things with Cirque people, or, or how much do you sort of try to get into the local culture and experience that? So for me, that part of it was fantastic because I got to live in new cities. Like I said, at the very beginning, I wasn't really working. Um, so I had my own work that I was doing, producing events still. So I was kind of flying back to the United States to produce events. And it was great because I, I took it as an opportunity to sort of learn new cultures, meet new people. Um, we had the, you know, look for events that I could meet. And I still have a lot of good friends in some of the cities that we experienced because of that. Once you start working, it's a little bit, of course, more difficult because you have long hours and, and there's a, each tour has kind of their own culture that gets created. Um, some are more open, some are more closed, and there's very specific types of routines that happen. And for the artists, especially, as well as the text, to be honest, it is definitely, um, it's hard on the body for anybody who works there because you're always in a new city, you're getting used to a new room, you have a limited number of your things that you bring with you. I mean, not that limited, but pretty limited. And then you have this, you know, you're, you're constantly pushing yourself to improve the show. So even though the show is basically the same, you're still looking at improving it. So techs are working with artists to introduce new acts, to make sure that the safety is up. You're always checking for the safety. So there is, it's definitely a vigilant culture in a lot of different ways. And yet at the same time, people want to cut loose because, because it is that way. And some of them are young. Some of the artists that come in and some of the techs are really young. So it's just this very weird culture that gets created. You strike me as being very independent, very adventurous. Where, I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I didn't <laughs> think about it. When I was younger, I never thought about it because I always thought, um, I always thought I was just going with the flow. This is, this talks so much about perception, right? When you're sort of unconscious to it, when you're not really recognizing it, I just always thought that I was kind of taking the next logical step. Like for example, when I was in Seattle, when I was in um, finishing up my, my degree, my undergraduate degree, because my master's is from the University of Florence. But when I was finishing up my undergraduate, I thought to myself, I got two job offers just about at the same time. And one was with the, the FBI and the other one was with this high-tech company that nobody knew. And it was like, there I think was the first time that I started to realize that I was a little bit more adventurous than some other people because the the criteria of why I chose to go to Seattle rather than going to Alexandria, Virginia and go work for the FBI was that the FBI was one job for the rest of your life. 
Like they talked about it in the sense of you will, and it was a super cool job because it was audio and video forensics. So it was a super cool job, but it was like, you do this one job for the rest of your life, then you become an expert witness. And so you're set, like you have your comfortable economy, you have your expertise that you're going to build up over the years. You're going to know that you're going to have this really sort of comfortable, successful career. And the other one had stock options, totally risky, but I was like, I'm 22 years old. Who cares about a pension? Like I want a stock option. <laughs> so let's go there. And I think that that was kind of like the I mean, not in the time that I was making that decision. I just thought it was fun to go like explore something completely different and not knowing that it could fail because it was an internet company and like it could have gone good under. But it was a year, a few years later when I made a few other choices that some friend of mine said, she's just like, you're like the bravest person I know. And I'm just looking at her going, why? And she like made this list and I was like, ah, I just thought it was logical. Like, I just thought I was doing what, you know, what came naturally. Well, where do you think that comes from, that, that adventurous side and that sense of independence that is just, I mean, that just seems very natural to you. That it... Yeah, and, and it's funny because my mother is not like that, but at the same time, total credit to my mother because she said it to me. We've had this conversation before. My mom um, made a lot of safe choices. Like I said, you know, she picked religion because she wanted a set of rules that she could be within and that was what she wanted. And even in her own like work life, she never really um, uh, like, I, like didn't take bold choices and didn't do that. She's lived a really comfortable and she said it. She's, she's told me, I wanted to just be comfortable. I wanted to be comfortable and safe, um, but I never wanted you to be held back by those things. So she never made it sound like that's how I should be. And she never taught me that you should be like me. She always um, would ask me what I want, like, like, and, and even allowed me to make some bad decisions. Like I was, I don't know, I was a dancer when I was younger and I danced ballet for many years. And then one day I just promptly stopped. And many years later, I asked her, I'm like, why did you let me stop? Like I could have kept going. I mean, I would have never been a ballerina. I'm way too big for that. But, but I would have, you know, got, gone, kept going and at least, you know, had that. And she's like, because you wanted to stop. And I was like, yeah, but you're my mom. You could have pushed. And she's like, no, that's not my job. That's not my job. You made your choice. I told you what the consequences was. I explained, you know, the good and the bad. We had a conversation about it. And my mom was always like that. Like if I did something wrong, she never punished me. She would sit down and we would have a two hour conversation. She would explain like, when you don't come home on time, this is what happens. I stay up, I don't get to sleep. The next day sucks for me, this happens. I start to get worried. Something could be happening to you. So I put things in motion. We start to bother other people, blah, 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 blah. And at the end, I would feel so bad because of what I had done that I would punish myself. I'm like, I'm going to my room for the next you know, two weeks or whatever it was. <laughs> so I think that kind of created a safety. And the other thing was the way, which is funny, because like, again, she doesn't take big risks, but there was something in the way that she taught me was to always take a calculated risk, but more than anything, create a safety blanket underneath it. So sometimes a little too much, I'll be honest, but it's really weird. Like, yeah, I went to Seattle because it was a calculated risk. I was in my twenties. 
I had, um, you know, I, I knew that I could always come back to Miami if I really needed it and live with my mom. I knew that, you know, I could make some good money while I was there. And I started to put all that aside so that I could take more risk. So I never felt like I was doing things that were risky or kind of being adventurous because I, what I did always is create a safety blanket underneath it so that if I failed, something would catch me right underneath it. And I think that was one big piece that she did teach me straight up. And then another piece is somebody said to me once, my first boyfriend said to me once, if you have something that you want and you don't go for it, you don't get it. But if you go for it and you fail, you don't get it. So you have nothing to lose. Words of wisdom I still carry from my 15 year old self to who I am today. Can you, can you tell me about Dom and her? Um, what's it like there? What, it, what is life like there? <laughs> oh, I have to laugh because it's like nothing I've ever experienced before. So Dom and her has a few different aspects. Okay. One part of it is like living in a small town, right? You, when you live in a small town, you know, everybody knows you, you know, everybody, there's a whole thing, even though we're not one area. So different than what many people think of and some other communities are, where it's like you come in and you have this one big um, living area that you, you all live in, um, like a physical uh, commune type of thing. We're not like that. We're actually made up of a combination of different levels where we have some people that live in what's called a nucleo, which are our shared homes. And sometimes there can be anywhere from five, eight, 15, up to 30 people. I once lived in a nucleo where we were 31 people living in the, the nucleo. So giant house, lots of territory, lots of different projects going on. And then you have people who live maybe in their own apartments, but are part of the spiritual side and interact on a regular basis. And then you have some other people that have just chosen to live in this area because they really like the energy, because they like the overall thing that's going on, even if they don't strictly adhere to the spiritual side of it. So you can interact socially and spiritually in different levels. And um, the thing about it that's amazing is that we all sort of have this shared philosophy, right? We have this belief system and from those of us that are initiates part that, that follow the spiritual path, we have this shared rituality, this shared um, uh, common set of goals that are both macro, like the reawakening of the divine spark of humanity, the evolution of humanity, all that, all the way down to like the micro of taking care of our sacred woods forest, um, the way that we interact with one another. So you have lots of projects that are happening and lots of different what we call spiritual research that you're doing and so you're able to express because we're a um, kind of like a city you're able to express your spirituality in whatever way works for you so for example i am in one group i'm a part of my um i'm a part of a group that researches the the interaction of humans with nature and how we how we better understand our own divine nature by interacting and spending a lot of time with nature. So that's one area that I study a lot and that comes into very heavily into my work as a, as a nature inspired mentor and into the way that I coach my lead in leadership and into the way that I um, teach because I teach uh, plant 
communication and I teach uh, plant intelligence. So it's all informed and I get to research it there. At the same time, I'm part of another group where I'm a knight, which is part of the creation of our temples. We have um, what's considered kind of the eighth wonder of the world, the temples of humankind, which are underground temples that we've built completely by hand. Um, beautiful chambers, completely decorated, all created by us since the 1970s. I think 1978 is kind of when we started. So these temples and the kind of think of it like the Knights Templar, right, where it's about the building of the temples, the protecting of the temples, but also the security part of the whole people. So I get to express that nurturing side of myself, that, that desire to take care and create safe and sacred space through my work with the Knights. And in there also part of that safety is understanding nature and being able to, like I just did survival training a week ago and I did a weekend of survival training and understanding what are the important things and aspects of that because that helps me better protect our people and the creation of our culture. So other people instead are parts of different groups. A friend of mine is a part of a group that is all around the spiritual economy and what does it look like to have an economy that's sacred. And other people are connected to, for example, numerology and what does numbers look like. And some, so we have all kinds of different aspects the thing is that because everybody around here is connected in some way to Domenher, there's a shared culture, understanding, and openness. Like you don't feel like you have to hide any of this. You don't feel like something you're thinking is crazy. Um, and there's the opportunity to add that ritual uh, alchemy side of it to help propel projects forward. So it's it really in that that's, that's the reason that it becomes Hogwarts, right? Because the thing beautiful when we watch Harry Potter that we love is that all of them have their own kind of way of doing things. Like somebody might work with dragons and we have people here that work with dragons and some people might work instead with wands and we have people here that work with wands. And so you have all these different pieces, but in the end, your overall goal is all going in the same direction and you can rely on one another when you need it. That being said, let me make this big caveat we're human, like none of us are perfect. We have tons of problems too. But the thing is that having a shared culture and a desire to grow means that there's also more opportunity for like working through those. But, you know, we're humans and a lot of people here come from the countryside in Italy at the very beginning. And now there's more and more foreigners that are coming in. And so it also makes an interesting hodgepodge of, of culture in, in the creation of what, what is our Dominurian culture. So I'd like to dive into your, your leadership philosophy, how, how that has been shaped and maybe talk a little bit about your coaching and, and what, what kind of people are you, what kind of people are you coaching? Are they professionals? Are they um, younger, older? Uh, I mean, because typically, you know, you have kind of like your your niche people mm -hmm. that that come to you and absolutely um so i'm i'm just curious because you have this really broad you know it's like you're you're painting with this huge palette of of colors and 
I, I think it would be pretty cool to have that and focus all of that creativity and, and intellect and your, your logical brain and actually coach somebody on leadership. Um, and, and I, so I don't forget. And um, so, and how does the plant communication work in with that? Does it work in with that or? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And the reason it works in that is um, pretty much what I've learned over my years is I, th I think in ecosystems. So uh, I just um, recently was working on a systems thinking course with, uh, I was taking a system thinking course from uh, Fritov Capra. And what I love is that that way of looking at how the overall, remember I had said that one of my kind of deep patterns, these things that I've always had is this idea of how to create that safer, sacred space. So a lot of what my, my clients are multi-potentialites, they're people with lots of passions and lots of interests. Most of them are very creative. If they're not particularly, either they're artists or healers tend to be a lot of the people who kind of come my way or people that have been in the corporate culture, but have a strong spiritual side. And now they're trying to understand where do they bring that in? But a lot of them are just creative in nature. Like they're, they're creative in general. So they tend to love nature in some way, shape or form. That's houseplants or going out and spending time in nature. They have a, a deep connection with that natural world. And they tend to be, like I said, creative or very spiritual in some aspect. And they're, they don't know how to put these pieces together. So when you're very, when you're a multi-potentialite, you have all these passions. And again, you start to think that they're separate. You start to think of them as like these different, like even what I was just talking about in my life, right? All these different aspects. But when you take a step back and you ask people how they've used their talents, their skills, their passions, you start to see the deep patterns emerge. And the deep patterns can be like for myself, it's creating that sacred space it's the organizational aspect. So seeing things that look very disparate and being able to put them together. And then, so once I put them together, then helping create that nourishment. So many of the people that I work with come to me because they kind of feel like the odd duck. They feel like they've got all these passions. They feel like they're supposed to choose one. And what I help them see, and I put mirrors up is, how have these actually been working together? What are those deep patterns that you have that you've always used and that if you take that same deep pattern and apply it across, I don't know, like one of my clients, I'll use a great example. One of my clients, she is a, she loves to design and she is a trained musician. She plays uh, the French horn. She was, when we first started working together, she was teaching at a university, um, just one class online already, even before uh, lockdown so she could teach anywhere. She was nomadic and she was kind of building websites, but in a really kind of uh, without a real clear way of doing it. And she is a yoga teacher. It's like she had all these different aspects. And when we started to break them down, we started to realize that her yoga informed her way of being and that allowed her to see the true essence of her clients so that when she would start to design, she could design in a way that was personalized to their yoga. 
and that brought out their creativity because she had this creativity side that comes from her musical background. Like we were able to start to just piece these pieces together so that her leadership style for herself, the way she leads her own life, and then the way she leads her clients into their work comes from a very holistic focus. It comes from the idea of not leaving anything out or choosing one thing over the other, but giving yourself permission to explore them all and let the pieces naturally fit. Because what we learn in nature, and this is where the plant communication comes, is that plants really hold the archetypes of, of relationships. So we think of relationships as like, okay, we're partners, so both of us get a benefit, or uh, we think of it as competition. We have like basically two or three patterns that we as humans are aware of. But the truth is that there's at least five or six, if not more types of relationship patterns. And nature is really great, and especially plants at choosing which one is best for you at the time. And it might only last a little bit of time or it might last a long time. And some are mutually beneficial, which have kind of specific criteria that are slightly different than the way we think about it as humans and that help us, but there's summer competition, summer parasites, summer predation. There's summer, uh, what's called commensalism, which means somebody gets a benefit, somebody else doesn't get any benefit at all. There's all these types of relationships. And those relationships can be with other people from a perspective of a human, but they can also be within my own talents. So when I give myself permission to look for those patterns and to be okay with however those patterns come out, I now give myself permission to see how my disparate talents actually tie in together. And how, if I instead look for the places where, they, like for example, I've, I, I studied music engineering, like I said, and I, I was a musician. I, I played the piano and I sang in college. I've never played the piano since I graduated, but I will always be a musician because my brain, my mind thinks like a musician. I have that creative piece. And I love that that training has taught me how to help musicians and artists of all sorts, especially I work a lot with painters and designers and people who are trying to get their creative inspirations out into the world, because my kind of more technical mind has always been geared toward what is it that the artist is trying to express? What is your big why? How do you fit that why into the world and how important it is for the world to be able to see that and use that? So I create that sacred space, that safe space to express that. So a lot of my clients are entrepreneurs or naturepreneurs. So they're nature inspired entrepreneurs. Uh, we tend to look at things as an ecosystem. So, and I use the communication with the plant world specifically for the people who want to express that because plants have a different logic than humans. And plants, when you start to work with them, either as mentors, as models, and as collaborators from a scientific, as well as from a science uh, spiritual um, basis. I mean, I have a master's in um, what's called vegetal future, plants, social innovation, and design. So I have the really kind of technical side of plants and I study plant intelligence as well as the spiritual aspects of it. And when you start to enter into the logic of plants, you start to understand that you are nature. And I could start to develop new parts of myself because the things that plants can do specifically in the way that they do them, I might not do them the same way. But the concepts, because I am nature, means that I can also start to develop different sides of myself that 
create those ecosystems that really nourish those ecosystems. Cause that's the other thing. Plants are autotrophs means that they create the nourishment for their ecosystem. So my goal with my clients is how do I create the nourishment for the ecosystem that I need to build? And how do I work together with others? So that's where the leadership becomes really important. And that might mean looking at things like limiting beliefs and, and but I have a, a whole different way that we look at it because it's really about evolving into your true nature, really evolving into who you're supposed to be and allowing those connections to create really unusual um, combinations for your work, but that work for you. And what I love about this period of time that we're in is that we're maybe you know, 50, 60 years ago, we might've felt trapped into the idea that like, I have to have a store and it has to do this thing. And that certain roles have certain ways that they get carried out. Today, we have a lot of flexibility in personalizing the way that we work. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. Like my father, like I said, was a jeweler, but I've seen jewelers that are super design oriented. I've seen jewelers that are really functional. I've seen jewelers that do magic. I've seen jewelers that instead work with ornamentation. Like there are so many now ways that we can personalize ourselves and, and also market ourselves. So we talk about how do you really market something because of the why, so that you can reach the goals that you want that are really fulfilling and nourishing for your life. I love your passion. Like watching you talk is really cool. Um, it's like the, the uh, so the people that are just listening to this, you got to go check out the, the, my YouTube channel and watch this video. Cause <laughs> if, if it's not coming through in her voice, you can definitely see it. Um, but, uh, and I'm, I'm so, I wasn't sure what to expect you know, <laughs> reading, reading your bio, your bio. Um, Cause well, I, I think that most people listening to this, most people in my audience, I think are probably thinking along the same lines as me is like, what is plant intelligence? <laughs> it's a, which is a great question because the thing is that we all our lives have grown up with this idea that plants are these, you know, immovable kind of almost objects that sit in our homes or are outside of our house. But what modern science is starting to recognize is the fact that plants have, if you think about what the definition of intelligence is, right, which even in its most basic form, intelligence is the ability to um, to capture a stimuli of whatever sort and to make a choice and a change in behavior based on that stimuli. So I, and for that to happen, it means you have to have memory, right? Because I have to know that something came in, I have to have reception, receptive properties. Then I have to be able to remember that thing. And then I have to be able to compare it to something in order to then make a choice on how I change because of it. And that's really the essence of plant intelligence. It's the fact that what we're learning from modern science and for probably about the last 10, 15 years that finally people are starting to get into this and start to accept, although there's a huge controversy, there's a lot of people that do not want to use the term intelligence for plants, but it's the idea that plants really are paying attention and that they have some kind of processing system that is not the brain that we as humans have, but that there's another type of processing system that allows them to take in stimulus, 
remember it. And there's been studies that have been done to show that plants have memory and then make choices. So literally plants are comparing something that happened to something that's happening right now and making a choice and changing behavior because of it. And this opens up a whole world because it means that the plants that are in my house, like right now I'm just staring around me and I have one plant here and there's several all around my house are actually a part of my life, not just as decoration and objects, but as participants and as potentially collaborators. And also given the way that plants sort of um, evolve and more importantly, their understanding of families. So um, from other studies that have been done by like Susan Simard, for example, we know that plants recognize their family. So plants will treat direct family differently than they'll treat other members of maybe even the same species and then differently even from other members of the ecosystem. And so they pass generation by generation, they pass information, which means that the history of our planet is actually embodied in the plants, right? The history of 470 plus million years of history is embodied in plants. And so we can tap into that. We can connect into that and we can learn the process information and the way that they make decisions is different from the way humans do. And so what else could we learn? Plus, they have a lot more senses than we do. We have five senses that we know of, right? We can taste and we can see and whatever. They've got those five, but they've got another 15 and at least. And so that means that they're taking in so much more input from the planet and they're able to make decisions at such a granular level. What could we learn from that? Plus what they decide usually produces no waste, is good for the overall um, ecosystem in which they're in and is pretty resilient and can adapt to constantly changing conditions because plants are always having to adapt, whether they're in a forest or whether you've brought them indoors in order for them to survive indoors, they've adapted. Many of the plants that we have as houseplants are actually originally tropical plants and they've had to adapt to an indoor environment with low light, with all kinds of things. What could we learn from that from as leaders for us to be able to become resilient and to be able to adapt? How can we build our teams the way that plants create their own bodies or the way that they create ecosystems? What can we learn from the relationships with pollinators that they have or the relationship they have with other plants? Like there's just so much out there that again is natural. It's natural to us. And it's, and that therefore, if we were to start adopting more of these ways and collaborating more with them, then how different would our houses be? How different would our lives be? So if you would have to sum up your approach to leadership and, and how you coach leadership, would you say that first you, you kind of examine your nature or the nature of the person that you're coaching and, and help them kind of see their role in their ecosystem? Is that Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would say that the most important part for us to recognize and what I, I would say to sum up my leadership style and the way that I coach leadership is everything you're experiencing is natural to you, whether it's a limiting belief or something that's trauma or whatever, but the way you're reacting to it has a natural. If you can go back into what the original goal of it was. So let's take the idea of I'm afraid to spend money. 
that might have originated because there was a liter literally a lack of some sort and you were having to learn how to deal with it. And then it's perpetuated on. So there is a, there is a positive natural aspect of that that came. And if we can go back to that, if we can take that essence and then now expand that forward and take it forward, we can modify the way we deal with something. The same, you can find it in anything like, why don't I listen? Or why do I feel like I need to yell at somebody rather than like work with them in a different way? And the way that I interact with a team, if I, if I take a step back and I think about, okay, what is really the most natural quote unquote approach without me forcing it, right? We say from a biomimicry perspective, which is um, when we um, imitate or look to nature for patterns that we can follow, humans tend to use the beat, treat, um, what is it? Beat, treat and heat method, right? We tend to beat something, heat something or treat something in order to get it to happen where nature instead would evolve into it. And so if I was to take away that human cleverness and think that it's super cool to keep beat and treat, which is really what's destroying our planet, and instead step into a slower, more natural approach, could I find more happiness and joy in what I'm doing? Could I actually find a way to work better with people? Because is it the end result that's most important or is it the way that we're doing it to get there? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with you that it's all about the journey. Exactly, exactly. And we spend so much of our lives judging ourselves and thinking that we're doing it wrong or wondering and all these things. And if we just learn to accept our true, our true selves, again, taking out those layers that aren't mine, like I had to separate myself from the things my mom was, or I had to take away from things that maybe I might've been taught in school. And, you know, I maybe had to like, un, you know, um, unlearn a series of things in order to get down to the fact of what do I really like? What am I, what is really true to me? What, what is it that, that I would choose if I were on a deserted island, you know, type of thing. And, and again, that's where the, that other logic of plants allows me, you know, plants flourish in their own ways and they're all beautiful in their own weird ways. And so it gives me permission. I mean, I would say that a lot of my, my coaching style is about giving yourself permission, is holding up those mirrors to show you that you can give yourself permission to be whatever it is. And then from there, you work with that. And that, that might not mean, like, I'm a naturally, it's really funny because you were saying earlier, you know, the passion, it's the passion that helps me and the curiosity that helps me because I'm actually a super negative person by nature. Like there's a part of me that's really critical, which is great if I'm trying to dissect a project that's not working, but it sucks if I'm trying to um, create something new with a group of people who maybe don't know each other. And if I'm too critical too soon, that deflates the whole project. So, okay, that's me. I can admit it to myself. This is who I am. So what are the, what is the essence of why I'm being critical? I'm being critical because there's something I don't understand and I think it's working wrong. Okay, so what if I'm curious about it instead? And I ask a bunch of questions that are curious. What if instead I look at it with this way? Could that like, I could still get to the same essence of what causes that critical nature, but do it in a way that's fun or um, uh, constructive. So, but if I don't understand, if I don't accept myself and I keep trying to transform my critical nature, then first of all, I miss out on all the positive aspects of it, which there are. 
And probably the other aspects are driven by fear. So I don't really get rid of the fear and it doesn't really change anything. So I first have to accept it and then work with it. I couldn't help but tie a few things together um, when you were talking Yay, about- Yay, my coaching is working right there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, so I have a question, but to lead into the question, I, I wanna kind of make sure that I'm really traveling along the same path as you here. When you were talking about your dance party productions, Mm-hmm. creating a safe space for people to express themselves and, and to grow and, you know, enjoy that space. And then you talk about as, as humans learning ways to grow, to better express your true nature, your true essence. How do you coach people on how, um, to better give themselves space. Yeah, this is a huge part of it. And, and I think that this is one of the places where physical nature, like this cat just jumped on my desk. Um, this is a place where physical nature is really um, a great tool sometimes. Um, this is, I think, why for me, uh, most of my coaching, and this is why I like coaching nature lovers, because it helps sort of create that uh, place of space. So when you interact with nature, which can be in any way, like for, for many of my clients, I might start off with just a house plant, right? Just really taking that time. We've lost the, er- the art of observation. We've lost the art of observation of others and of observation of even ourselves. We judge ourselves a lot, but we don't really observe ourselves and observe ourselves without that judgment, observe ourselves to really kind of look at the whole picture. So for me, creating that, that space is really important. And I might work like, for example, in my coaching programs, I include um, my course, Reconnect with the Plant Kingdom, which is all about you know, how you do that reconnection back into this relationship, which slows the pace down. And that doesn't mean you have to be slow because I'm a super speedy person, but it's more of a, of a, of a way of looking at something. It's, a, it's about allowing yourself to give time for things to emerge in the way and to trust that your process takes time and it's iterative because that's the other thing. We tend to think that, you know, I go take a course or I work with a coach for like my coaching program is a year long and it's a year because we're different in the different seasons. Like I'm different in the summer than I am in the spring. I'm different if I grew up in Florida in the summer and the, and the winter in Florida, like it's just different aspects of it because nature itself is rooted in its place and it's different across the seasons. I'm different in a new moon versus a, a full moon. I'm different from the perspective of from after three months of working on something, I'm different, but that doesn't mean I finished it. I still need to go on. So I, I work a lot with my clients to give themselves permission to slow down without missing a beat. So we do work on, like for those that are building businesses, for example, and they're working on their personal transformations as they're building their businesses, we look and see, okay, where where are the places where we can sort of fast track this piece, knowing that I'm gonna change it. So it's okay to build this piece, give it a layer, stratify it, and then add another layer that even completely changes the layer that you already created. 
So again, it's about permission. It's a permission to think, not see that as a failure because you might think that I left high tech like Microsoft to go work you know, with my own production company, but that production company is what got me to Cirque du Soleil and what got me here to Dominar where I am. So there is no failure. I, I left, or even when I left tour, like, what are you talking about? You're with Cirque du Soleil. Why would you ever leave? Because that wasn't what needed, I needed anymore. So it's not a failure. It's a step. And if I, and I trusted in the process, so it got me where I am today. And so part of also all of that acceptance is accepting that each step you can, can, can be a step forward, even if it looks like a step back and that we can put things in place that are temporary, that we know we're going to learn from, and then we're going to grow to the next level. And that growing might mean changing everything completely. So there's lots of different aspects around this because again, that's how an ecosystem grows. We as humans tend to think we like change, but the truth of the matter is we're afraid of it because change, radical change or transformation, or especially evolution tends to mean breaking down what was to what is, right? So I don't, I might see the idea of, I don't know, like, if you think about it from plants, when they came from out of water and into the land, I might think of those plants that no longer could breathe underwater as a failure. Oh my God, I can't breathe underwater, but wait, they've become land vascular plants. Like there's a whole evolution that happened there. So because evolution usually takes hindsight, it's really hard sometimes to consciously allow that evolution to happen. So that's why that safe space is important where you don't see something that happens as a failure, but you see it as maybe a step forward that something gets left behind in order for you to grow into something new. That's beautiful. I really, really like how you explained all of that. Thank the plants. They've, they've taught me so much. <laughs> and it's funny because I'm a city girl, right? I mean, Miami's not a, really a city, I'm a suburb girl. I wasn't used to doing that. I wasn't used to taking, I didn't grow up going to the woods. I don't have that benefit of saying, I spent all my life in the woods. It was really, again, a growing process, a, a really an understanding and a connection that, that I allowed, that I gave myself again permission to, to do in order to then move forward. Before we started recording, you mentioned that you are going back to school. Um, you're, uh, you're, working on another degree, I assume? Yeah, I'm doing a, a certification prog pro, um, program right now. So I'm back at the university. So I, uh, in 2018, 2018, 2009, no, so 2017, 2018, I went to Florence and I got the, my master's. So, um, which was again, a very unusual master's because it was the first time it was being offered ever. And it was with one of the kind of predominant scientists in the world, on plant intelligence, so Stefano Mancuso. And when I finished my master's, I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Now what am I gonna do with it? <laughs> I was like, I wasn't really sure what I was gonna do. Um, and so my, my career has continued to evolve right? and all these different pieces that get added to it. And so uh, the last year has really been about um, this really focus on leadership because in order, I, I kind of have this philosophy that says in order for you to break rules, you really have to know the system. Because when I really know the system, then I can make conscious choices to break. And my community is called the naturally conscious community because I'm all about making naturally conscious choices. So things that I'm very conscious of, I make choices to do it, but at the same time, it's very natural to me. 
Um, and so this last year has been all about finding all the tools that I need in order to really understand the system. So a lot of like leadership, systems thinking, ecosystems, classes, um, lots of studies also on plants. I'm about to launch a book club for plant inspired books. And so I'm, um, I've got this book club now starting up because it's more a, a way to study. And I love creating community around it. So that's why I have this naturally conscious community, which is a place where we can all talk about our inspirations and have this opportunity to sort of share experiences. So I decided to go back to the university to get this certification. It's connected to leadership and coaching so that I could really step further into um, because it's one thing to be a mentor, and that's where all the nature-inspired sort of models, and I'm a biomimicry facilitator, so it's really where I'm able to look and work with plants as, you know, models and mentors and collaborators, but it's another thing to coach where it's not so much about me leading the process, but more about, again, creating that sacred space. So I want to really expand as much as possible this whole leadership and coaching perspective to ensure that I give my clients the best tools possible for their own growth and expansion. For those listening, if, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you and, and learn more about your coaching program, learn more about what you're doing, um, how would they... How would they connect with you? How would they find out more about you? Yeah, the easiest way is my website, of course. Uh, so which is just my full name. So www.tigrilagardenia.com. And then I again have this, my community, which is just community.tigrilagardenia.com. Very easy to get to. And that's the Naturally Conscious Community. And that's also where I have all my programs. So you can, between the two of them, you'll see my one-on-one -on -one coaching programs as well as, for example, I have um, my course, Reconnect with the Plant Kingdom, and I have some kind of starter courses to get you into it, and my group, which is the Naturally Conscious Leadership Group, which is a membership group. So I have a few different ways that I connect, but I, everything is inside the Naturally Conscious community because rather, that was another thing that was really important to me. I wanted a place that really was a safe space. So I took it off of the normal social medias like, Facebook and LinkedIn and all these things, although I'm present on all of those, so you can always find me there, but I wanted to create a space. Um, so it's a dedicated social network just for us. I will make sure that I have uh, your contact at, well, your websites in the show notes. And um, I, I'm blown away. Like I, I, I really didn't know what to expect, um, but there was, I knew there was something about you that I wanted. I, I wanted to connect with you and, and learn about your perspective. Um, really, it's, it's fascinating and it's beautiful. And I thank you so much for coming on and, and talking with thank me. Thank you. I'm super humbled. It's, it's, uh, it's a journey, like you said, it is the journey and that's that's, I think, the part that's most exciting. And from a person who grew up, who's had her share of problems, who's had her, um, and if you go through my website and go through my blog, you'll read some of them from having body dysmorphia to you know different other aspects of my life, where if you putting those all together and sort of like seeing the process and being where I am today, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very humbling. It's super humbling. <laughs> so I... Uh, well, one thing that I, I think is really interesting is that we, we hit on it. Well, you hit on it 
without me even really mentioning it is, you know, the, the title of my podcast is From Embers to Excellence. And that really comes from um, my, my own personal belief that I needed to share some of my experiences and talk with other people that can share their experiences, um, not just about uh, leadership, but we all make mistakes. We all fall on our faces or things happen that just seem like, man, you know, the, the, my whole outlook, my, the plans for my life are, are gone now that I I've contributed so much of my time and effort and all this for all this to just go away because of this. And if you have the right mindset and the appropriate perspective, like, like you're saying, taking a step back and kind of looking at everything, it's just another step in your evolution. And that, you know, I've, I've made some mistakes, you know, I, and, you know, and bad things have happened in my life. And, um, and I've always really had this sense that if, if I can use this in some way to add value to somebody else, then this didn't happen for zero reason. And I'm going to grow from it and I'm going to help somebody else grow from it. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. I completely agree with everything you just said. That's, that's exactly what it is. And from, from a dumb and hurrying perspective, we have this concept around the Holy Grail, um, which I won't get into because that would be a whole separate kind of episode, but it's really about the idea that the Grail has changed form and the grail has entered into the form of, of kind of evolutive disease, like the way that we look at things that kind of make me disease or, or ill or whatever, which way you want to look at it um, for that word. And it is exactly that. It's the perspective of, and I have to say, I, I have this obsession with sort of, I, I watch a lot of um, inspirational videos of people who have maybe very rare diseases and stuff like that. And I, I love it from the perspective of everything has, I don't want to say that everything happens for a reason because that's kind of corny and, and all these aspects, but it is really about the way we deal with it because some things are inevitable and our lives take turns and we make decisions based on the knowledge that we had at the time. And they're not always great decisions. And, but it's what we do with it afterwards that that becomes the, the sort of highlight of your life because that it happened, it happened. You can't change it. And that's the other piece of it. It's like, how do we accept that I made this choice? I made that choice. It was a bad choice or, or this bad thing happened to me and whatever. And it, yes, but now how do I go forward from it? How do I evolve from it? How do I take it someplace that it needs to, to be taken? I, I thought it was amazing how really throughout our conversation, you really painted that picture. And 
I don't know if you intended on that, but I, I don't think you did. <laughs> no, I think we call it here synchronicity. It's the way that it is. And, and that is also that, that's that alignment. That's that attunement, right? That, that moment of opening myself um, the same as you, just by inviting me here and me opening and saying, okay, let's take this conversation where it really needs to go and trusting in that process that, you know, so not prescripting things and not doing it in this way, but really feeling that comfort of being able to say, I'm going to take this where it needs to go because I'm going to, I'm going to listen to you. And that going back to kind of leadership style for a second, I'll kind of segue into it for one second, which is that's one of the most important things that I try to get people to understand or, you know, in my coaching that we work on is true, true leadership is less you talking, more you listening. (laughs) Because from there, all the answers will come. And it's amazing how much the person you're, and that was a really interesting part for me as a coach to also learn was the, the, the how much over the years I ask, I, I speak less and less in my sessions and my clients get more and more out of it because it's, again, that sacred, that sacred space, that safe space that gets created and that pop of that important kind of profound, deep question. And then the person, and then listening to the words. So I have to be that mirror. Like, I just heard you say this, this, and this, and then your body changed over here. What does that mean? And all of a sudden the person being like, oh, wow, I didn't even notice that. And then like getting into it themselves. So that's the hallmark of a great leader. Like really that listening. What's funny that you say that. So uh, I've written a book. It's not out yet. uh, hopefully by the end of summer. But I, I talk a lot about philosophy and just really that there are these uni- universal truths that span you know, humankind's history. And, and I have enjoyed exploring that in all these different religions and philosophies, there are some very uh, there's consistent truths throughout that. And um, one of the things that you just said that uh, I, I think is really cool, I, I don't know if there was an earlier person that said it, but um, I'm thinking probably because he got it from somebody, but Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, <laughs> would teach, look, you have two ears and one mouth you should be listening twice as much as you're speaking. Oh. Um, and as a chatterbox, that was an important lesson for me to learn. <laughs> like, okay, listen more. Listen. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's, that's it. And, and you'll find that in some form or fashion, in so many different religions, so many different schools of thought, that that is such an important component in developing good, trusting relationships. Yep. Yep. Well, Tigria, thank you so much for, for spending all this time with me and, and really digging deep. This was a great conversation. Thank uh, you. Thanks for the, the questions and the listening, because again, a good conversation is only possible because we're both listening. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.